You're so sweet. <laughs> thought I would start uh, the exploration on a winter day, and a winter day where it snows. And this particular winter day, there were two characters in a cartoon playing in the snow. Our favorite, right? Calvin and Hobbes. So Calvin has created a snowball that if he's standing tall, the snowball is about up to his chin. It's huge. And he looks like he's having a great time. And Hobbes says, aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now? And Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my (laughs) self-esteem. Hobbes scratches his head. It is? And Calvin says with great conviction, sure. It sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. You know, apply meditation to that. So he keeps building the snowball, which is now up to his forehead, and he's rolling it down the path. And he said, so instead of trying to learn things, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. And Hobbes says, you know, I think your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining ignorant. And Calvin says, please, let's call it informationally impaired. So the spirit of lightness... Uh, Then the spirit of seriousness from the Buddha, famous quote from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be taken as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever. Not everything but the thing that you want to take is yours. Nothing. So what I want to talk about tonight is um, the journey of embracing the dark and inviting the light through the teaching of self and not self through the teaching of how we create ourselves, getting to know the storyteller, uh, who we take ourselves to be, and the journey of dismantling the self, um, becoming larger than the contractions that run our lives. This is the great investigation or experiment of what we're doing here on retreat. Uh, And it could be the great investigation of a life. Um, It's certainly been a wonderful investigation for me this whole year to just focus on this theme the whole year in practice and in teaching. So many different doorways into this theme. So first we have to mention this thing that gets us all confused and worked up or, 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 you know, we just would rather not deal with it. It's this thing, no self. People say, you know, what's this thing in Buddhism, no self? Does it mean I don't exist? And the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes, you don't exist. But that's just the first line. The second line is we don't exist the way that we thought and believed that we existed. Okay? So even though the answer is yes, the answer is more inclusive than that. Um, We don't exist the way that we were taught in Western culture. And yet, the way we were taught in Western culture is included in the way that we exist as who we are and how we live a life, right? So it's a both-and teaching. Or as a meditator once said, you know, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? (laughs) 
Maybe I can let that one go. Or hold it with a little more compassion, a little more wisdom, a little more lightness. Oh, this illness is passing through a system that I label me. You know? It's just a different way of relating. That's all. So, talking about the dark uh, and the light through the teaching of self and not self, uh, we'll talk first about developing a healthy sense of self. This is imperative uh, in any kind of engagement on the spiritual path. Then we'll talk about a teaching that I've been developing over the course of the year that I've been calling the four S's of self. We'll talk about how we cycle from selfing as a process into not selfing as a process. And I'm very interested in practical application so that this isn't just a mind trip. You know, this is how do we live it? Really ordinary ways, moment by moment, day by day. So we'll start with the healthy sense of self. What does this include? We're familiar with this. This includes developing a sense of personal boundaries. What is I? What is you? Uh, What is mine? How to take care of what is mine? Basic self-confidence, or as Calvin was working on, self-esteem. A healthy sense of love and connection, you know? that isn't falling into the traps of, of the detachment, the numbness, the codependence. All these things. And then from this development, which we've all done over the course of a life, we all have areas that could use a little bit more nurturing and developing a healthy sense of self. Then we can open to, oh, I'm more than I thought I was. You know? I'm bigger than the habit pattern that I always call me. I am a person who is always upset when A, B, and C happen. Ah, I could be bigger than that. That could just be a part of a whole. When we don't engage this process throughout the cycle of practice, and especially at the beginning of a spiritual path, any spiritual path, what we can fall into is this really painful dynamic that uh, psychotherapist and teacher John Wellwood coined the term for it, spiritual bypass. So a spiritual bypass is the tendency to use spiritual ideas, this is from John Wellwood, to avoid dealing with basic human needs, feelings, and developmental tasks. We've all done this. Oh, I'm just going to ignore the body because I'm supposed to sit here completely still for however long I thought I was supposed to sit here. And then we end up with an injury. We bypassed uh, the personal, the healthy sense of relation to our body as self. Or we say, oh, it's all happy. It's all, you know, here we are in California. It's all love and light, right? We stuff the anger and the resentment so deep that we develop an ulcer. Or, you know, we... Uh, blurt out something unexpected that we're incredibly ashamed about and then take that on as, you know, this is who I am. I'm not love and light. I'm really that horrible thing that I said. No, just popped out. You know, we're all of it. We're none of it. The thing about spiritual bypass that's tricky is we'll often think that we're kind of in an okay place, but actually we're in the dark about some area of our life. 
Uh, so it's just kind of important to know the term. And, and without making a project of it, just keep your eye out for it. It's not a problem when it's there. It's just part of the path. But if we're trying to make sure that we never bypass, we're never the person who does the meditation wrong, uh, you know, that's a setup. We've all done it. We've all done it. So then we'll talk about the four S's of self. Um, There are basically four ways that we could look at ourselves, and I just started them all with S because I have trouble remembering things like lists. And so if they all start with S, I like acronyms also. Just easier to remember in a moment of duress. Okay. So here's four ways that we could relate to ourselves. Simple sense of self. Solid sense of self. Self-interested sense of self. And social sense of self. The short version of this that I call it is the four S's of I. I not being the eyeball, but me. So I just say, oh yeah, which of the four S's of I am I engaged in right now? It's just yet another map or framework for those of you that benefit from maps and frameworks. We're actually, we already know these intimately and we're practicing with them all the time. So we'll go through them. And we'll start with where it's simple, the simple sense of self. Uh, This is the basic sense of I am, okay? So it's before I am Heather. It's just the I am. Actually, before I continue with this, let's get a felt sense of it. We'll do a little exercise. You're welcome to join it or not as you wish. This is an exercise that I learned from uh, one of uh, the monastic elders in our tradition, Ajahn Sumedha. And the way that he taught it is he said, look at the gaps in between the words if you say, you know, I am, then your name. So the way he'd say it is you say, first I say to myself, I am Ajahn Sumedha. Feel that. Feel it in the body, Feels pretty, you know. I'm sure for Ajahn Sumedho that feels fairly familiar. For me to say I am Ajahn Sumedho feels not familiar. You have your own name, your label. And then he'll say, then say, I am. And leave out your label. Then say to yourself, I. And then don't say anything at all. Just rest in the silence. So try it because... On a theoretical level, it doesn't really sound like much. It's really a practice to be practiced. So we will do it whispering, okay? So we'll start with, I, and you whisper it out loud, your own name. I am Heather. Just feel that. And then, And then, I. What if we didn't even drop in the I? There's this pregnant pause. It's pregnant with possibility. Some people resonate with practices like that. Other people will say, that was meaningless. 
sometimes it takes repetition. It's like the first time somebody does an inquiry practice and they go, oh, I dropped in an inquiry question, but nothing came up, so I guess I can't do inquiry. Uh, if we did that with the breath, we'd be in big trouble. Well, I was trying to be mindful of the breath, but you know, I could only track two or three of them, so I guess that doesn't work in, you know, meditation's not for me. It's one of many ways in a practice like that. So simple sense of self is this basic I am. It's before I am Heather, fill in your own blank. And in fact, this deep-seated, visceral, fundamental sense of I am is one of the last, um, sometimes in the tradition it's called fetters, to dissolve the contraction of I am. is one of the last things to dissolve before the mind is awakened fully free. So if you have a really strong sense of I am, it probably just means that you're not 100% enlightened, you know? No problem. No problem. We've really got to take all of this lightly. We take ourselves so seriously. Uh, the the um, fetter of I am compares better, worse, or the same. Uh, it's certainly the seeds of the judging mind. starts with I am, because as soon as we have I am, then we have you are. And then we've got the separation. No. Uh, so we need to go back to the simple. As John's been pointing out, we go back to the simple, just the simple I am. And sometimes what people ask is, well, it sounds too simple. What if I can't function from just I am, not I am Heather, I am being somebody, I am doing something, just I am. And what I see when we look at the masters in every tradition and people that have been doing this for a while, we can actually function as human beings without acting out of being somebody doing something. Uh, We can use the sense of I am without it belonging to anybody. So I'll give a really concrete example. About a decade ago, a little bit more now, His Holiness the Dalai Lama made one of his visits to the Bay Area to teach. He was here for several days And there was a young woman who got to spend a little time on several days in his presence. She was actually in her teens. And somebody asked her after that experience, um, she's a practitioner, and they asked her, they said, so did you like His Holiness the Dalai Lama? What did you think? You know, what did you think of him? And she thought about it and she said, I liked him. Big surprise. Can you imagine her saying, I couldn't stand him? (laughs) She said, I liked him. But the reason that she liked him was this. She said, you know, it seems like he meets everybody and everything fresh in each moment. Each interaction is new, is what she said. That's the simple sense of self that can just meet every moment, every internal, external experience simply new, without a lot of extra mining and eyeing and me. And then there's great joy and great connection and great compassion available. And it's also available in that pregnant pause before the eye. Another practice, just to keep things practical. This practice comes from one of my colleagues, uh, Mary Grace Orr, who's a teacher here. And I heard it from her many, many years ago, and I've practiced this hundreds of times. Uh, And it's a little creative mental note, you could call it. It goes like this. 
Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. So what I have done hundreds of times, walking from the dining hall up to the dorms, every step, one step, nowhere to go, which is really great when we're going somewhere on retreat, but oh yeah, nowhere to go. Next step, nothing to do. Oh yeah, I thought there was something to do. Nothing to do. No one to be. No one to be. It's it's brought me great joy, that practice going up and down the hill. These transition times are really important, I think, to develop creative practices that make us smile or keep us connected to the thread of mindfulness so that it keeps us momentum. One more quote. It's from a Tibetan teacher, Lama Zopa Rinpoche. He says, while you are meditating, there is an I representing the self, which appears to exist from its own side. Right on top of that, think to yourself, the I is a label. Just meditate on the meaning of I being merely a label. I is a name. A name doesn't exist from its own side. A name is given. A name is imputed by the mind. Somebody named us, and we've taken ownership of it. From healthy sense of self, this is very important. From a broader sense of experience, if we get too caught up in that, it's painful. So we have a simple sense of self. Then we progress into, out of the simplicity, into solid sense of self. That's the second one. We know that we're in solid uh, sense of self when we start concretizing our experience, making it real, it feels solid, it feels separate, we believe that it's so. Think of your own example of that today. I really believed this thought, and then I took it to be mine, and then it's me. That's really what we're doing moment by moment is watching this great show. We've got to watch it with a tremendous amount of compassion because sometimes it gets really messy, huh? Yeah, we really get stuck in it. So one map for how we create and maintain the habit of solid, separate self is actually a really complex map that I'm just going to do broad brushstrokes because the details don't matter in this case. But some of you are familiar with it. It's actually called the map of dependent origination. It's how we create our habitual sense of self. Uh, Basically, it stems from ignorance. It includes that we have a body and a mind. I think we could all agree on that. Uh, We've got these wonderful sense doors that work a little better or a little worse depending on conditions. We have contact with the world. Uh, Once the Buddha said, you know, being a human being, only six things happen. I bet you thought more than six things happen, being a human being, living a life. But he said only six things happen. What's six? Sights, sounds, smells, touch, taste, and thoughts. If we keep it that simple, we're in simple sense of self. But that's not what we do. We take it even further. So I was thinking about the question this morning in the hall about feeling tone. 
And then I was thinking about Donald's story about the two arrows, the Buddhist teaching on the two arrows. And I think these tie in really well here. The question about feeling tone was how to practice with feeling tone in the meditation. What is feeling tone? Feeling tone is, if we want to keep it very, very simple, having a human body in mind, everything can fall under three general flavors or tones. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Sometimes it's called neutral. So you could just check, even in your body right now as you sit. Find a place that's unpleasant. And then see if you can make that huge leap to realizing that there's probably some area of your body right now that there's pleasant sensation. See if you can find one. Sometimes we get in the unpleasant vortex. (laughs) And then the tricky spot is neutral. Any sensations in the body that are like neither pleasant or unpleasant, that's where we space out. We miss the neutral. We're addicted to drama. You can check it out. So feeling tone's actually a pivotal point when we can work with it from there, which sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. When you can, great. Sometimes the best way to work with feeling tone is to hit rewind. So for example, you're caught up in some painful story um, about the past. He said, she said, you know, your whole kind of life's inventory, right? I'm I'm sure it's happened to some of us on retreat, right? Already? It happens. It's not uncommon. And we get caught up. When we catch it with mindfulness, we could hit rewind and say, what happened here? Was there a feeling tone that set that off? Oh, yeah. You know, there was that that one thought and it was unpleasant. Or it was, you know, the... um, it was the view out the window reminded me of this, that, and the other and, you know, set me off on this whole trip. This fantasy was pleasant. But now I'm off in a different country five years ago. I just saw a pleasant sight out the window. Poop, we're gone. So hitting rewind is not cheating. We can trace it back. Uh, that's one practice with this. And the other one is just noticing how many people, I'm curious, since that second arrow teaching of from the Buddha where we're saying, okay, the first arrow is unpleasant human experience, basically, uh, that we're born, that we get sick, that we age, that we die, that we get what we don't want and we you know, uh, don't get what we do want, all of that. First arrow. Anybody notice first arrow, second arrow today? Did it, it kind of, yeah, some people noticed. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it feels like 15 arrows before you catch the clue that there are arrows going? I mean, the two arrows teaching is really helpful. It's as if we're shot by the arrow of being human and then we add the extra suffering or struggle. But sometimes it's, we're hit by the arrow of being human, we add the extra struggle or... You know, and then it turns into an arrow of judgment and an arrow of physical contraction and an arrow of shame and an arrow of this and that. And all of a sudden we're filled with arrows. And it's like, oh. Which reminds me of another teaching from the Buddha about arrows. It was as if a person, the Buddha said, was shot by an arrow and they looked down and they said, oh, look at this arrow. The wood is very interesting. I'm looking at the grain of the wood and there's a feather on the end. I wonder what bird you know, that feather is from, and I wonder what the point of the arrow is like. Oh, it's in me. I'm bleeding to death. 
You know, we do this to ourselves. Take it out. It's a tremendous act of fierce compassion to see when we've been shot by an arrow and take it out with mindfulness, with the tools that we have. So these are ways to practice with solid sense of self. And then we get really complex and we move into self-interested sense of self. So let's run through the three. Simple sense of self, solid sense of self, self-interested sense of self. So how do we identify that? The self-interested version is needy, it's clinging, it tends towards addiction, it's very self-obsessed. How do we know that it's there? We know that it's there when we've become somebody that needs to be asserted or protected. I am the greatest meditator Spirit Rock has ever seen. I'm going to assert that by walking slower than the other 90 retreatants, even slower. We have just become that meditator. And then, of course, when we drop the fork in the dining hall, we go from one extreme to the other. I'm the worst meditator that Spirit Rock has ever seen. And we collapse into that self-interested sense of self. So we know that we're in that version. And we all go there. Uh, When we become somebody, when it's all about me, I think of it as the me, 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 me. Everything's about me. Uh, And when the events of our life are the main event. So one open question that I'll ask to myself in daily life as well as on retreat, when it just seems like things are getting a little myoptic, I'll ask myself, Heather, is this the main event? Whatever it is that I'm obsessing on. And often the answer is no, it's not the main event. In fact, in the 7 billion people, there are those being born and dying and meditation is happening across the planet. Lots of people are having that knee pain. It's mine, it's ours, it's not the main event. But sometimes, maybe you get this, in parentheses almost, the little voice goes, it is the main event. It really is. I'm going to grab onto it. That's okay. It's important that we see it and don't spiritually bypass beyond it. You know, we include everything here. This is from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. That's a moment-by-moment decision. It's not like we make it once and check it off our to-do list. Moment-by-moment Are we walking in the light of creative altruism or more in the darkness of destructive selfishness? And we just move back and forth. All of this is a continuum. Duality doesn't really work in this practice. So how do we work with this? Uh, Firstly, compassion. This is getting really painful. And in the pain of when we take ourselves too seriously and it becomes much too much about us and we look through our eyes at the world and we can't even see the person that we're walking next to because we're down that hole of, of you know, selfing. We need a lot of compassion. We need a lot of compassion for ourselves. We need a lot of compassion for all the defensive habit patterns uh, that are creating this moment of suffering. 
the way that I look at defensive habit patterns these days is that um, I feel that a lot of them were created in the past in a time when we didn't have tools and support or even the age that we are now to do it a different way. Think of them as kind of outdated ways of relating to ourselves in the world. And yet, if we just try to get rid of them and kill them off, we're really doing the whole process a disservice. It's almost as if first we have to say, thank you, you know, um, concrete bunker in front of the heart. Thank you, numbness. Thank you, you know, angry, spiteful habit pattern. Thank you, whatever yours is. Because it was a way that we kept going when we didn't have other tools, other avenues of support. And out of that thank you, we can also acknowledge, ah, this is now. We have different support, we're a different age, this developed when I was 12, now I'm this age. It needs an upgrade. But the upgrade can be in the spirit of compassion. So whether it's the loving kindness practice for ourselves, whether it's the compassion phrases, my favorite compassion phrases are these. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. And I like it that it's this pain because it reminds me that when I'm taking it really personally, which of course we do from time to time, right? (laughs) That it's actually this pain. I know that you have it too. I know that you know what I'm talking about, even though we have this form right now where your role is to be quiet and, you know, not have a lot of expression. And my role is to talk. (laughs) I know you know. Uh, In some ways, we have to rediscover the genuine sense of all rightness okayness almost and then we expand beyond it so that we don't have to protect it so fiercely and we can connect with the world if we don't have connection with the fundamental sense of okayness that's not dependent on a bright sunny day and everything going our way then any flicker that we have we're going to fiercely protect Um, it needs to be nurtured it's growing here in this hall I hope that you can feel that in moments A teacher that I studied with in Dharamsala, India, a couple of years ago, has an interesting teaching on this. His name is Geshe Sonam Rinchen. He says, Our exaggerated sense of self and our compulsion to find happiness for this larger-than-life self that we have fabricated causes us to ignore, neglect, and harm others. Of course it is our right to love and to take care of ourselves, but not at the expense of others. While, as long as I'm all right, in quotes, is our motto, we have no hesitation in acting with total disregard for others. This is the self-interested sense of self when it starts to meet the world. And we haven't caught it. We haven't brought in the compassion. We haven't gone back to rest in our basic integrity of the simplicity of practicing the precepts, for example. 
The precepts are such a refuge for the self-interested sense of self. Because we just say, oh yeah, I care about non-harming. So even though I think it should go this way, I'm just going to follow the action of non-harming and trust that it's good enough. So, simple sense of self, solid sense of self, self-interested sense of self, social sense of self, number four. And of course, social sense of self meets all the rest of these. Uh, it's, it's us, me, meeting the world. Uh, our social roles. So I'll just name a few of them. We're all familiar with these. A parent. You know, I am the child of my parents. Boss. That's a social sense of self. Disgruntled employee is a sense of self. Uh, an ac- activist. A vegetarian, a victim, can be a social sense of self. An athlete, our sexual orientation, ethnicity, class, age. These have internal manifestations, but they also manifest outwardly as social sense of self. So how do we practice with this? It's especially interesting to play with it when we're here in the silence, because there's more simplicity in our buttons of social sense of self are not being pushed to the same degree. I always marvel and kind of giggle to myself. Maybe this has happened to you. The end of a retreat will come and I'll open my mouth and within two sentences, Heather has like reconfigured and you know, she's, she's just like putting herself out there to whoever I'm talking to. I'm like, where was she for the last week, last month? last two months. She took a little uh, sabbatical. She relaxed out of the solid separate. Then it comes back together again. Or maybe you're just kind of simple, right? Lifting, moving, placing, pulling the door, tasting the food. It's all very simple, easy, little suffering, no big deal. And then you go to your work meditation. It's like, I am a person who chops the carrots. You know? It comes forth even here. I am the person who always walks in the upper meditation hall on the far left. How long did it take you to find your preferred walking spot and then they're there? Don't they know that's my spot? You know? There is no judgment in this. This is our humanity. The judgment is extra. Right? <laughs> I know, easier said than done. So we'll talk about some practices for this. One practice is to notice when you modify your internal attitude or external behavior in relation to others. So I'll give you an example on retreat and I'll give you an example off retreat because I do this practice a lot off retreat as well. The on retreat example is what I call the queen of the hall social sense of self. Did you know that I was the queen of the hall here at Spirit Rock Meditation Center for many years? I mean, didn't you see the sign on your way in? No? Well, it's true. I was the queen of the hall for many years at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And when I would manifest as the queen of the hall social sense of self, what it meant was that at the end of the day of practice, uh, I like to sit late 
And then be sitting, enjoying the quiet. Everybody's gone. It's just, it's so delightful. If you haven't experienced it late at night and, and you have the energy ever on a retreat, try it out. But then that social sense of self, queen of the hall, would come in. And there'd be a few more people sitting. And I'd think, hmm, I better stay until they leave. <laughs> and I would wait and I'd wait. And it wasn't meditation anymore, it was waiting with the social sense of self, of queen of the hall. And I'd wait and I'd wait and I'd wait. And I've sat a lot of long retreats here, so sometimes when you're really into a longer retreat, you have to wait some time for everybody to leave the meditation hall. I probably outweighed you once or twice, Donald. (laughs) Why am I bringing this up this way? Because this is what we do. And then we create a bigger and bigger story about it. Then we start making it about poor Donald here. He's just sitting, minding his own business, trying to meditate while I'm giving the Dharva talk, right? Really, I'm glad you're laughing because um, if you walk away from one thing from this reflection, it's please hold yourself lightly. When we hold ourselves lightly, mindfulness is more available. Compassion is more available. Therefore, transformation is more available. We get really uptight being queen of the hall or anybody else. We're just locked in a habit pattern. So I'd sit there being queen of the hall and then everybody would leave and then I'd get lonely. (laughs) Then I was lonely sense of social self, hoping somebody would come in because I'd already proved it. It's not about me. It's not about the queen of the hall. It's not about this whole thing. It's about this is what we do. So noticing it, really noticing it with a sense of humor, with compassion, with mindfulness, and then noticing on either side, external, internal attitude, external behavior shifts. So the internal attitude was kind of like the I am better than attitude. The external behavior shift was I am going to sit here even if I die until everybody leaves. Let's talk about the opposite example. Because it goes both ways. Internal attitude can shift the other way. External behavior can shift the other way. I call this turning it around. In daily life, I've done this practice for years. So in terms of Buddhist psychology, there's three general types of human beings. It's a very simple framework. There's the kind of greedy, wanting type there's the aversive, fearful type, and there's the confused, delusional type. We all have all of these. Usually one of them is a bit more predominant than the others. For me, the one that's a bit more predominant than the others is the aversion type. Okay? So knowing that about myself, I then took on the practice of saying yes. So somebody would come to me with an idea. One of the things about being an aversive type is there's a lot of skillful discernment available in that type of personality, uh, but it can be used in not so skillful ways. So it's always a double-edged sword. So somebody come up to me with an idea, and it was a basically good idea, but in my mind, I would immediately start poking holes in it and finding the places that needed to be fine-tuned. It's the problem-solving mind. Instead of saying all that to them, I would smile. And I'd say, yes, that's a great idea. And then the mind would go, what are you talking about? It's a terrible idea. It needs to be fixed this way, this way, this way. And they tell me more about it. And I get really into their interpretation of the idea. 
whether the idea was what we were going to do on Saturday or this work project or whatever. And as I listened and connected that sense of aversion and no, which is a habit pattern type of thing that can create a sense of self and can very much create how I'm perceived socially in the world, softened. And then I could maybe come through with, oh, here's an idea that might, you know, bring something more into that, but there was no edge. So that's a way of transforming the attitude and the behavior kind of the other direction. Uh, Another practice might be noticing your core beliefs about yourself. The way that I play with this is with an inquiry question. And the inquiry question that will drop in from time to time when you just notice that there's a strong social sense of self going on is, I am a person who... I am a person who gets up late. I am a person who um, is sick. I am a person who is young. I am a person who, we've all got a million of these. When we notice one is actually running our life or running our day on retreat, you could really drop that in and say, okay, I am a person who is always sleepy. And then ask the question, is that so? Is that so? I am the person who is sick. Is that so? Is there more than that? Is it changing? How much have I solidified it? How much can it just be in flux? Ah, yes, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Then we get to be in our fullness, both internally and socially. Another simple practice. And we can play all of our social roles with care um, without being that sense of self. We don't have to be it. Have you ever uh, gone to work and just played the role that you were supposed to play at work without getting overly involved in it? It's just, oh yeah, today I'm employee number 12B and uh, I'm going in. Here's the to-do list. Nothing extra. It all gets done. So, Simple sense of self, solid sense of self, self-interested sense of self, social sense of self. So then you might be thinking, well, I thought we were going to talk about self and not self. Uh, We are. We are because when we start teasing apart the layers of who we take ourselves to be right now, we're automatically opening into something bigger than who we thought we were. It doesn't have to be esoteric. One day, when the Buddha was sitting under a tree, and I imagine it being a great-grandmother tree somewhere in the dusty plains of Mother India, somebody asked him a question. And though I don't know if this is true, I imagine that person, there's a small group sitting around him, and I imagine that person thinking of the question, it came to mind, and then thinking, could I ask the Buddha that? And it's kind of summoning up their courage and saying, I've got a question. The Buddha's saying, yeah, friend, you know, lay it on me. I don't know if the Buddha said lay it on me. But, you know, the Buddha did encourage us to, uh, to bring the Dhamma into the vernacular of the people. So <laughs> he would have understood lay it on me. Here was the question. The question that day was, Buddha, what is a person? What is a person? It's a huge question. 
But, you know, he's the right person to ask huge questions to. He said, my friend, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Here is the answer I've got for you today. A person is the simple coming together of five heaps. It's actually the the translation of of the poly word is, is heaps. Five aggregates, five component parts, okay? What are they? Person includes we've got a body. There's form. Person includes that the three tones of basic experience are pleasant and pleasant and neutral. Okay, that's number two. Five component parts. Number three includes being a person. We have perceptions. They're usually based on memory. Number four, thoughts and emotions. That would be included in being a person, right? And then fifthly, consciousness. So that's a whole teaching that's an entire Dharma talk. But when we remember a few of these, and the key to this was actually not to take them so seriously as me or mine. Um, because when we do, if we take our bodies, you know, here we are. We've put so much into arriving here. The sincerity of the practice in this hall is just stunning. So much caring, so much courage, so much diligence. Yes, I'm talking about you, not everybody but you. you (laughs) Just for the one person or the, you know, 55 people in the hall that just had that thought. Um, Here we are, and then we start to solidify around it if we can just let our body and mind be our body and mind, it has its own life cycle. It's like a process happening to a system that we label me and mine. But actually, we know from our meditation practice that it's a process happening to a system. There's some thought burps, some emotion coughs, some physical sensation you know, um, itches. These days, I'm almost thinking about thoughts as just burps, you know? We don't make a big thing about when we burp. Why do we make such a big thing about thinking? It's a big deal. So if we don't let them just be in dynamic flux, a process happening to a system, then what we're doing is we're freezing the law of impermanence uh, that says scientifically and from the Dharma that everything's changing. When we try to freeze that and lock it into place, it hurts. We know it. It's suffering. And if we take it too personally, then we get really confused about what's going on. And the confusion just grows. So the point of this is that we take the very same body-mind complex and relate to it differently. All of this is about how we relate. Nothing really changes except how we relate. And then everything changes out of that. So this is from the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. He says, friends... We who look at the whole and not just the part know that we too are systems of interdependence. Interdependence of body, of feelings, of perceptions, of thoughts, and of consciousness. All interconnected. Investigating in this way, friends, we come to realize that there is no me or mine in any one part. Just as the sound does not belong to any one part of the lute. Here's a modern day interpretation of this same teaching of how we're a bunch of components 
that are processing together all the time. So this is from a Tibetan Lama, uh, Losong Samten. He moved to Philadelphia a number of years ago, and he was very interested in some of the cultural manifestations in the West of sense of self. So this is what he has to say. If we look at our own individual lives, the I is a key factor affecting what we do in our everyday life. The I is so important to us that even though we cannot define the I, we still believe it. All that we do somehow relates to our own feeling and understanding of the I. I am going. I am sad. I am hungry. I need food. I am reading. I am happy. Thus, the I influences and relates to all that we do and think all day long. The I is like the fuel or an engine that motivates us and keeps us going throughout our lives. Here's his kind of take on Western culture. Nowadays, I hear from my friends in Philadelphia about the many eyes that you can find in stores. I was very curious to find the eye because my understanding from my extensive Buddhist studies is that there is no eye, that the eye does not exist independently. So we should not be able to buy an eye. So in search of the eye, I walked into the Apple store in the shopping mall and asked the sales clerk if they had an eye. The sales clerk said, yes, we have many. We have the iPod, iPad, iPhone, iMac. Which eye are you looking for? I can imagine him saying, simple sense of eye. <laughs> I looked at each of the items and held them in my hand. I found so many eyes. I was so happy. I found the eye. Many meditators in the past have chanted the Heart Sutra and searched for years to find the eye. And in this one shop, I found so many. At first, I thought, maybe I've reached enlightenment because even the Buddha could not find the eye after six years in retreat. But here I was holding many eyes in my hand. First, I picked up the iPad, then the iPhone, then the iPod, and then I looked at the iMac. I wondered... Which is the real I that I'm looking for? So, as I stood there looking at these lovely devices, I asked the clerk, which is the real I? Can you imagine being that clerk? <laughs> he looked puzzled and he said, excuse me? What do you mean the real I? I responded, well, for over 40 years I've been searching for the real I, and here you have so many eyes. I wonder which is the real one. As I saw the puzzled look on his face, I decided to investigate a little deeper into these eyes. Here's the part that connects with the five component parts from the Buddha. Looking inside these devices, I imagine him like taking them apart and the sales court covering, hoping that they can put it all together afterwards. He said, I could, I could find a battery, chips, and wires. Although these are all parts to the iPad or iPhone, they do not exist independently as an eye. Just as when we look in our bodies, there are nerves, veins, organs, a heart, and a brain, none of which on their own compromise the eye. Suddenly, I felt very disappointed that I had not really found the eye. Yet, simultaneously, there arose in me a feeling of contentment, realizing the truth and the teachings of the Buddha, that there is no independently existing eye. So there you go, enlightenment in the Apple store in downtown Philadelphia. It is possible. I don't know if he got enlightened, but he definitely had an insight. 
In mindfulness itself, there are many qualities, as we all know. We're really discovering it from the inside on retreats like this and in our daily life practice as well. So many qualities that make up a mature mindfulness as it grows, as it deepens. And as a practice that we're doing here, mindfulness is intimately connected with the objects of mindfulness. We start with the breath. It's an object of mindfulness. Then we get up and the contact of the feet on the ground, the steps, objects of mindfulness. We reach out and touch a door, the object of mindfulness, of that contact. So many objects... The world is full of objects to be known, to be mindful of. And of course, what we discover is that we're more and more mindful of the array of objects in the world. Things get very, very interesting. The little things that we autopilot through every day of our life become the most fascinating things in the world. Flossing my teeth, wow. Just standing, looking out over the courtyard there. How many thousands of hours have I stood on that ledge and just looked out? So beautiful. There's the mindfulness of the objects. It's a very important training. But the other thing that we notice as we continue into retreat, as we continue on a path of practice, is that as the whole thing deepens, one of the aspects of mindfulness that comes to the foreground of our attention is actually the knowing quality itself. It's that thread of awareness that maybe you've experienced when, sometimes I call it the dance of mindfulness. We get up from our chair or our cushion and it's just moving, moving, touching, pulling, tying, moving, opening, pulling, washing, this and that. It's just so sweet because it's not so much about what's happening anymore. It's the thread of continuity of knowing that is meeting every experience, every object of mindfulness and that objects themselves stop to matter as much. And what comes into the foreground is that thread. And it's so sweet when that thread becomes more stable, non-reactivity dies down more and more. Wisdom arises, things become more easeful, letting go begins to happen automatically. I just want to share a quote from one of the masters in the Thai forest tradition about this process. It's really a meditation instruction. His name is Ajahn Fuang. Once the mind is firmly established in the breath, you then try to separate the mind from its object, from the breath itself. Focus on this. The breath itself is an element. It's part of the wind element. Awareness of the breath is something else. So you've got two things that have come together there. Breath and mindfulness or awareness. Now, he says, when you can separate them through realizing the breath's true nature as an element, the wind element, the mind, the knowing quality can actually stand on its own. 
After all, I imagine him saying with a smile, the breath isn't you and you aren't the breath. When you can separate things in this way, the mind gains power. It's set loose from the breath and it's wise to the breath's every aspect. When mindfulness is full, it's wise to all aspects of the breath and it can separate itself from them. Now let's not be mistaken. The kind of separation we're talking about here is a separation that leads to the deepest intimacy possible. You know, because we're actually experiencing things in their wholeness. There's not a lot of selfing going on there. So I'll end with a quote from uh, Peter uh, Matheson. He's best known as writing the, um, the Snow Leopard, the novel about the Snow Leopard. This is from a different novel. He says, in the jungle, during one night of each month, the moths do not come to the lanterns. Though through the black reaches of the outer night, so it is said, the moths flew towards the full moon. In the jungle, one night a month, the moths did not become fixated towards that lantern. One night a month, so it is said, they flew towards the full moon. That actually reminds me of another poem by a Zen poet many hundreds of years ago, Izumi Shikibu. It's about the moon. It goes like this. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. another way of relating to our largeness of self, our smallness, our largeness. So may we find the moon. May we find the moon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.